Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. We are in verses 19 through 34 this morning. Don't worry, God's got it. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The basic idea we're going to look at together this morning is this, that you don't need to worry when God is your father. You don't need to worry when God is your father. 78% of Americans live from one paycheck to the next. Almost 60% of Americans couldn't cover a $500 emergency without going into debt to cover that need. In churches, evangelical Christians give less than 3% of their income to the church or any mission or anything like that. And only 12% of professing Christians actually tithe. But to take it a little closer to home, if you were to kind of drill into homes and what the conflict is about, money is the number one argument between married couples. How you spend it, how you save it, why there isn't enough of it, or what we do with it. I mean, we're more affluent, we're wealthier than any culture in the history of the world, and yet we have more money problems than any culture in the history of the world. The problem with money is if you don't have it, you need it. And if you have it, you need more of it. That's just the way that money works. The more money, the more problems that come. But not only does money lead to conflict in a home, it also leads to anxiety. In fact, recently, the American Psychological Association conducted a stress in America survey. And on this survey, the number one cause of stress for two-thirds of people in America was money. In fact, they've begun recently calling this money anxiety disorder or mad. I don't know if that's pun intended or not, but it can drive you mad. Money has a way of eating away at us. 
So I don't think it's any accident that here in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus links money and anxiety or money and worry. The two seem to go together. But money is really not the only thing that you worry about. I mean, if you're a mom of young kids, sometimes you might worry that your kids are too active. Like they are just going crazy and they are not going to be able to survive in a world where they have to sit still and listen. Or on the other hand, if your kids sit too still, you worry that they're part of the couch potato generation and they're not ever going to do anything. I mean, isn't that the way life works? You know, you worry if they're too active and you worry if they aren't active enough. Or if you're a little bit older, you worry about, you know, how you're going to, I don't know, get out of bed each day. Or what the world is going to be like for your kids and your grandkids because, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and we're all riding there in it. And so no matter what it is, we are really, really good worriers. I mean, we have access to more comfort and more information. We really live a better life than any culture in the history of the world, and yet we have more to worry about than any culture ever. It seems that the skill that we've developed the best is the ability to worry. Now, I don't think of myself as a worrier because I'm not the kind of person I don't really fret about life. But as I thought about this, I am a worrier. Because I fixate on problems and I don't let them go. And I think about them and sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm thinking about those problems. Now what does waking up in the middle of the night and thinking about those problems do for me? Nothing except make me tired and cranky in the morning. We're professional worriers. We're just really good at this. So if you find yourself at all this morning preoccupied with the challenges in life, with what weighs you down that Jesus is teaching this morning is for you. And his first point is this. Money won't solve your problems. Now, I know you think it will, but it really won't solve your problems. I was thinking this week of a man who, who, had, uh, who was dying, and as he died, he, you know, he heard the old adage, you can't take it with you, and he thought, I'm going to take it with me. And so he gave three friends $10,000 each. And he said, when, uh, when it comes time, I want you to put this money with me in the casket. And as the time came closer, the man passed away, and one of his friends was thinking about it and realized, you know, he's really not going to know if I, you know, what I put in the casket. You know, he's not going to be here for this. And so they, th- you know, I'm going to keep a little back. And so they dropped in $8,000 and kept, you know, $2,000 back for a car repair. His other friend was a little more generous and thought, you know, I'm going to put in half the money. It's not really going to do him any good. And so he put in $5,000. And as the three friends met up later and they were talking about it afterward and they were kind of, kind of guiltily saying, you know, I didn't really put in all the money. The, the third friend said, I cannot believe you guys. I mean, I dropped in a check for the full amount. <laughs> so no matter how far you go, you really cannot take it with you. You can't take it with you. I mean, when you're gone, it's gone. The first thing that Jesus teaches about money is whether it's moth or whether it's rust, treasure in this world will be eaten away. I mean, you get that new car, and you even park at the far side of the parking lot, and someone parks next to you and dings your car. Or your new house, and your new house needs repair before you know it. It requires constant upkeep. But it's not just the elements of people around us. I mean, we also battle people. I mean, he tells us here, thieves break in and steal. Well, the key to having treasure that lasts is in verse 20, lay up treasures in heaven. Jesus literally says, don't treasure treasure on earth. Treasure treasure in heaven. There's this repeat about where our treasure is. One of the important parts of this is that money can steal your heart. Where your treasure is, verse 21, there your heart will be also. I think in this sense, this kind of connects us to why we worry about money, because we're more at risk for our treasure being here than a poorer culture. 
Uh, all of our cars, whether they're new or older, they have indicators on them. And one of the kind of key indicators in a car engine is your dipstick. If you pull out your dipstick, your oil dipstick, and there's nothing on it, that is not a good sign. It tells you what's going on down in that engine. Is there oil in this engine? And if the oil is clean, you pull it out, and it tells you something about what's going on there. And what Jesus tells us here is that what we do with our money at some level is, is a dipstick. It's an indicator of what's going on inside us. It shows us what's going on down in the engine of our life and heart. Where your money is, where your treasure is, there your heart is. I mean, if you track through your monthly expenditures, it tells you something about yourself. If you like shopping, you might find clothes on your list of expenditures. Or if you're a foodie, no doubt you find some food expenditures. Or if you're a gun enthusiast, you might find ammo on your list of expenditures. But one thing that we see throughout Scripture is that one thing that consistently shows up in God's people is sacrificial generosity. In other words, God's people are marked by being the kind of people who give away generously what God has given to them. You see, the Scripture teaches that we're the kind of people who, I mean, Scripture not only teaches the way that, or changes the way that we interact with each other, it changes the way we interact with our stuff, the way we interact with the world around us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul tells us, there's a church under persecution in Jerusalem, and it needs money. And so the other churches around hear about this need. And there's a particular church in Macedonia. Now, the church in Macedonia is like the poorest of the poor. They're, 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 they're the backwater people who have nothing. And yet they take up a collection for this church in Jerusalem out of the generosity of their hearts, out of what God has done for them. Paul tells us about these poor Christians. He says, their abundance of joy... Their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now, that's an oxymoron, isn't it? I mean, extreme poverty overflowing into wealth. And yet these people who are extremely poor, Paul says, gave according to their means and beyond their means. In other words, they gave more than they were actually able to give. Not as we expected, but why did they do this? They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. In other words, they understand that they're not owners of stuff, they're stewards of stuff. This stuff isn't theirs anyway. They're here to be caretakers and use this to invest it, like Jesus says here, in the kingdom of God. Where does this kind of generosity come from? Same chapter, 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty might become rich. In other words, this is the equation. We have nothing. Jesus has everything. And yet Jesus comes and he takes nothing and gives us everything. There's this, there's this exchange there. We have nothing, deserve nothing, can buy nothing, earn nothing. And yet Jesus comes and he takes all that nothing and he gives us his everything. He, out of his poverty, out of his wealth, became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. In other words, Jesus becoming poor, becoming human, becoming, as Paul says in Philippians 2, the servant of all, the lowest servant, took upon him the death on a cross so that through him we might become rich toward God. We have nothing, and yet God gives us everything through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, you cannot ultimately understand generosity and wealth as God views it if you don't understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. If you don't understand that the eternal Son of God, the King of glory, who had everything, literally everything at his fingertips, left it all in love and became the lowest of the low so that you through him might become 
rich. You might become everything. You might have at your fingertips all that he has at his fingertips. As 1 Peter 4 tells us, through him we are heirs. We have an inheritance reserved for us in heaven. It's not an inheritance that we deserve by birth. It's not an inheritance that we can earn. It is an inheritance that God gives us by grace. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you can't understand God's view of wealth. You can't understand understand God's view of generosity. So if you're here this morning and you're here with money worries, and at some level we all are, whether you have a lot of it or whether a little of it, if you haven't grappled with the generous love of God for sinners, you can't truly grapple with God's view of stuff. So would you turn from your sin, from depending on all of these things to bring you wealth and happiness and trust Jesus, who for your sake became poor, that you might become rich? Money can steal your heart, and money makes a terrible master. Jesus uses two illustrations in verses 22 to 25 uh, to make this point. First, he talks about blindness, and then he talks about slavery. He says, first of all, if you have one good eye, the whole body is full of light. In other words, if, you can, if your eye can see, you can see. I mean, it's not like you can see through your hands or, or your feet or something else. Like your eye helps you see. If you can't see with your eye, then your whole body is condemned to darkness. In the same way, if we're blinded by our love for stuff, we're condemned to walk in spiritual darkness. In other words, stuff is like, it's it's like eye patches. You know, you put all your stuff and then then you can't see. As as, uh, Matthew 5 says, you you can't see God if you're not pure in heart. Then Jesus talks about two masters, God and money. God says, be radically generous. Money says, get me and get more of me. I mean, money can be a wonderful tool, but it is a terrible master. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is walking through a number of life situations, uh, through what we say, through what we do, through uh, lying, through stealing, and he says this, that we should work hard, and he tells us the purpose of our work, doing honest work so that we may have to give to those in need. In other words, the reason that God blesses us is so that we may bless others. The reason God gives to us is so that we may give to others. The point of having is so that we may give. We don't have to have, we have to give, to be generous. So how do you know if you're the kind of person who uses your money or if you're the kind of person where your money is using you? When you might be a slave to money, if you strategize about building wealth, but don't strategize about how to invest your wealth for heavenly good, essentially how to give it away. You might be a slave to money if you can think of ways that money has brought you joy through entertainment or food or or drink or vacation, but you can't think how you have joyfully and sacrificially invested in the spread of the gospel here in this city or around the world. You might be a slave to money if you're spending all your money every month and have little or nothing left to give to God. So here's an exercise for you. Just take some time this week, either as an individual or maybe as a couple or as a family, And just do a financial health assessment. I mean, if you're in a place where you could be laying up treasure in heaven, but you're not doing it, just be honest with yourself about that. I mean, just look at that. Like, are we doing this? And if you're not in a place where you can do that, we have folks who would love to help you figure out how to do that. I mean, sometimes people aren't in a place financially where they can give. And ultimately, we're the ones missing out on a blessing if we're not giving. We're missing out on God's design for what he has blessed us with. So as we often do in life, we move from treasure to worry. 
And if money doesn't eat at you, worry will. Worry can consume you. There's no question what the theme of verses 25 through 34 is. He says anxious or worry six times. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. So the basic command is don't worry. And the underlying reason is your Father in heaven cares for you. And so the first thing we aren't to worry about is basic needs. I mean, he goes from saying, you're consumed with treasure, with money, and then, like, don't worry about your basic needs. God's got this. And he lists three things that we tend to worry about. Don't be anxious about what you eat or what you drink or what you wear. I mean, it doesn't get more basic than that. Food, drink, and clothing. And he says, don't worry about it. And then he gives us kind of two pictures to help us understand this, the first of which is birds, the birds of the air, he says. He says, God is so good and God is so sovereign that he takes care of these birds. There's a neat relationship here between God's care for these birds and their work. Jesus says that God feeds the birds, and yet we know by observation that how do birds get fed? They go out and and, and they scrounge it up. So there's some relationship between God's provision. There's a natural order to life that no one but God can change. I mean, how do we get sun and rain and growth? God sends it. If, it, if, it, if, if it, God doesn't send rain, it doesn't rain. If God doesn't send sun, there's, there's no sun. Well, the second picture is a flower in a field. Jesus takes it even a step further here. So the birds work, but they don't worry. Flowers don't worry, and they don't work. I mean, he says they don't toil, they don't, they don't labor at all, and yet God clothes them. They do nothing, and God takes care of them. I mean, how much work does a flower do to look beautiful? None. I mean, a flower just looks, God gives it, clothes it with beauty. I mean, if God cares about the beauty and care of a flower that's going to die in a couple of days, why should we worry? Everyone needs food, drink, and clothing. Verse 32, Gentiles seek these things. I mean, daily provision, that's a universal need. Everyone needs it. But Jesus says in verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough troubles. It has sufficient troubles for itself. Don't worry about that. It'll take care of itself. Focus on today. And this is because worrying doesn't help. I mean, there are a lot of things that Jesus isn't addressing here. Elsewhere in Scripture, God invests uh, the, the value of investing your work for the future, the value of hard work itself. But he is saying this, that worrying about life won't do you a lick of good. Worrying about a problem will not do any good about that problem. Verse 27, which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? I mean, think about that. Worrying about life, I mean, what will it do you? Can you add one, one hour to the length of your life by worrying about your health? Not a, not a lick. In fact, you might shorten it by worrying about it. If there's anything that doesn't help a difficult situation, it's worrying. And yet, what's our first tendency to do? Worry. We do the thing that won't help at all. So what's the heart of the matter? Seek God's kingdom first. Jesus says here over and over, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Well, why does he say over and over, don't worry, don't worry, don't, because we're so prone to worry. And so there are all these, don't do this, don't do this, don't, but it's not a long list of things, it's, it's one thing, don't worry. But rather, in its place, what should we do? Verse 33, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and God will take care of all of these things for you. Pursue God's kingdom above all else. So what does this look like? I think it looks a little bit like what Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then what do you do when it comes to our daily needs? Pray. Give us this day our daily bread. 
Like, seek God's kingdom and pray for your daily needs. In other words, pursue God's kingdom, and as you do this, ask God to provide for you, but don't worry about it. I mean, pursue this kingdom is to pursue the kind of life that, that Jesus has been talking about, a life that is poor in spirit, a life that is meek, merciful, pure in heart. To seek the kingdom of God is to live in such a way that shows that Jesus is our king while we spread the message that the king is here and the king is good and the king will care for you. In other words, our mission is to spread the message that King Jesus is here. As we do that, God will take care of our needs. All these things, verse 33, will be, will be added to you. God, God will take care of these things. So if this is true, and I imagine that if you're here and you know God at all, at some level you can agree with this, but if this is true, that, that God takes care of these things, he says, don't worry about these things, he said, pray for them, why is it that we worry? It's, it's not really enough to know this, is it? I mean, because we know it. God says it, and at some level we know it, but why is it that we worry? The root of worry is unbelief. In other words, we worry because we don't believe that God is good enough or powerful enough or caring enough or sovereign enough to take care of it. God doesn't got it. I need to got it. Like, I, like God's not big enough to carry this. I, I have to carry this. And we sort of take on ourselves things that God says, I, I, I'll take care of that. I, I, I've got that. And if that's how we live, if at some level we, we live in a way that shows like this root of unbelief, we don't believe that God is good enough or caring enough or powerful enough to, to, to do this, the root of the problem is we don't know who our daddy is. We don't know who our father is. The reason we worry is we don't truly understand the nature of our loving heavenly father. When we lie awake at night because we're fixating on a problem, it's because we don't trust that God can take care of that problem. When we're fixating on a problem at work or a problem at home or something that we know is coming up and we can't go to sleep, or if we struggle, have you ever had this, where you're with people but you're not with them? I mean, and I'm not talking about the time on your phone. I mean, like, you're, you're not emotionally, mentally present because your, your mind is somewhere else. You're worried about something someplace else. You're physically here, but you're mentally someplace else because you're fixated on that problem. Thinking about a problem with a friend or a family problem or a problem at work. Well, the root of worry is unbelief because we don't trust that God will care for us. We try to fix our problems by doing something that can't fix them, worrying about those problems because we don't know who our daddy is. But our Father is the one who says, cast all your anxiety on me, for I care for you. Our Father says, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Our Father says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Our Father says, I am near to the brokenhearted and save the crushed in spirit. Our Father says, I will supply every need of yours. Our Father says, I am your helper. What can man do to you? That's who our Father is. We don't need to worry. Our Father has it. Our Father takes it. Our Father keeps it. And he says, don't worry. I care for you. You don't need to care for yourself. I am caring for you. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. What tomorrow brings, what you will wear, what you will eat, what you will drink. Don't be anxious. If you've got anxieties, throw them on me and I will carry them. Our Father's big and our Father's strong and he can carry them. Don't try to carry what God promises he will carry for you. That's your dad. 
We could go on and on. We don't need to fight because God says he fights for us. We don't need to care because God says he cares for us. We don't need to worry because God cares for his children. We worry because we don't understand who our father is. You know, we get this a lot better when we're little, don't we? I mean, kids don't know much, but they know a lot. I mean, do you remember that? I, I still do. I remember conversations with my friends early in elementary school about, about whose dad was the strongest. And it didn't, it didn't really matter who was literally the strongest because all of our dads were the strongest. You know, if you've got a class of 20 kids, they, they are, there are 20 strong fathers in there. Because there's this, there's this relationship, there's this, there's this trust in this bigger, more powerful presence. And so what happens is like these little kids, they're like, that's my dad. They see their dad and, and their dad's got their, their dad can hold them, so surely he can hold the world, right? He can carry them, so surely he can carry all their problems. And brothers and sisters, we serve an infinitely more powerful father. Someone who can carry all of us, who literally took the sins of the world on his shoulders, bore them in our place. He can carry our problems. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. God's got you. God's got your kids, whether they're too active or not active enough. God's got your terrible employment situation. God's got your, your health that's falling apart. As your body fails, your, your worries mount, and God says, I care for you. Don't worry about what you eat or drink. God clothes the flowers of the field. God cares about the birds of the nest, so God cares for you. But you might be asking this, if this is true, if God's got this, why do I still feel like it's such an issue? Okay, I'm not going to worry about my marriage, but my marriage is still an issue. All right, fine, I won't worry about my job, but my employment situation still is terrible. Okay, I'm not going to worry about money, but I still don't have enough. So why is it that, I, that, that there are things that happen that don't make sense? Well, in that moment, remember, the root of worry is unbelief. Accept by faith what God has said and seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, God will put all the wrong things right, but he doesn't promise to do it today. I mean, my problem is, God, I want this solved now. And if it can't be solved now, then I'm going to worry about it. And until it's solved, I'm going to worry about it. And by worrying about it, I'm going to fix it. But I can't. Worrying about it won't fix it. There's not a thing in this world, not one thing in this world, that you can change by worrying about it unless it's the contentment of your own heart. Unless it's making yourself more miserable and that's your goal, then, then worry, have at it. But there's nothing else you can change. I mean, our Heavenly Father is more than able to care for us. So don't worry. I mean, let God take care of what only God can take care of. So let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. And maybe we need to repent of unbelief that's led us to worry. God, we do thank you that we don't have to worry. You care for us. We don't need to be anxious you fight for us, you provide all of our needs, and yet we live in this world where it's hard for us to believe this. When I don't have what I think I need right now, it's just hard, hard to trust you. So God, help us. Help us trust that you are good, that you are caring for us. And God, I pray for those here who 
don't know this kind of care from a heavenly father because they don't know you. God, I pray that they would turn from their sin and trust you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.